Chapter 61, the Spirit of my Lord Jehovah is upon me. Of course it says my Lord, the Lord in my translation, but the Lord in Hebrew is Jehovah, but Jehovah is not the proper pronunciation as we've discussed. It's just one pronunciation, nor is Yahweh. No one really knows how the word Jehovah is pronounced because it consists of four consonants without vowels. And there's any combination of vowels that could go with them. And then there's other questions about how to pronounce exactly those consonants anyway. The Spirit of my Lord Jehovah is upon me. And we saw in chapter 42 where the Lord's servant is endowed with the Spirit of the Lord. So that's a word link. And it identifies the servant there. Or connects these two passages for one thing. It says in 42.1, My servant whom I sustain, my chosen one in whom I delight, him I have endowed with my spirit. He will dispense justice to the nations. The Spirit of my Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. That's another word link. The anointing of the Lord's servant happens in chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whom I grasp by the right hand, to subdue nations before him. That's the political aspect of the Lord's servant. We discussed chapter 45, verse 1, and so it's a composite of King David and Cyrus. To announce good tidings to the lowly, that again connects to chapters 42 and 49, where the Lord's servant is to announce good tidings, also to chapter 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings. So there are all these word links here, all these connections. To interpret this passage here, you have to connect them to all those other passages. To interpret them, you have to connect them to this passage. It's like a domino effect. It'll say one or two things in one place, connect those two or three ideas, and then in another place it'll take one or two of those ideas and connect them to a couple more ideas, and so forth. This shows how the book of Isaiah is all integrated and woven together through these word links. You can't isolate one passage from another. But in the New Testament account, Jesus read this passage from Isaiah in the synagogue. And he said, this day are these things fulfilled in your ears. So he was applying this scripture to himself. And why should he not? Because on Isaiah's spiritual ladder, the Lord is at the head, and his servant or servants are on levels below him. But those servant or servants are always in the mode of emulating the one above, which is the Lord in this case. The Lord, in his reading of the passage of Isaiah in the synagogue, did not go on to verse 2, to herald the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, because that had not come in his day. Now in Isaiah, the Lord and his servant are always acting in concert or together. They're acting in parallel together. We saw that very graphically in chapter 41. So the messianic attributes, if you like to call them that, of the one are also the messianic attributes of the other. What the Lord does himself, the servant does. When Jesus came to the earth, he said he does nothing but what he has seen his father do. So the servant does what his Lord does. And those who respond to the servant's mission do what the servant does. Each one does what he sees the one above doing. And that way they grow into higher functions on the spiritual ladder. And the Lord can apply this to himself, of course. The servant is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. The one emulates the other. The Lord is filled with the Spirit and the servant is filled with the Spirit by his Lord. Each one has his Lord above him. The Lord himself has his Father, whom he spoke of. But through a series of word links, Isaiah makes very plain who this is. You can actually pin it down through these internal checks and balances that Isaiah has built into his book. 
The spirit endowment applies to the servant. The anointed status applies to the servant. His mission of preaching good tidings applies to the servant. Binding up the brokenhearted, liberty to the captives, the opening of the eyes of the blind and the bound, all of these things are word links to other parts of Isaiah describing the Lord's servant. Does the Lord himself do this? Of course he does. He liberates the servant. He anoints him, and so forth. He himself is anointed of God, his God. But in a very specific sense, pinning it down to an actual time frame, we're talking about a last days or latter days scenario, not the time of Christ's first coming. With Isaiah, with any Old Testament prophet, there are different levels of interpreting any given prophecy. To say it means this because Christ applied it to himself, and that's all it means, would be limiting the thing way beyond what the prophet's intentions are. Matthew in the New Testament applies several scriptures there to Christ, which don't necessarily apply to Christ where they appear in the Old Testament. For example, he says, I've called my son out of Egypt. And he applies it to Christ coming back when Joseph and Mary come back to the land of Palestine and settle there after the threat from Herod, who killed the little babies, is passed. And he says, see, this fulfills the prophecy, I've called my son out of Egypt. Does it? That prophecy appears in the book of Hosea, the Old Testament prophet, and refers to Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. How then can Matthew apply it to Christ? Well, he can, because the individual king of a nation or father of a people or father of a family goes through the same motions individually as the nation as a whole does. We saw a moment ago how the servant was abhorred as an individual, and his people are abhorred, or the people of God are abhorred as a people. Each one goes through individually. If he stands at their head, he ministers to them, he goes through individually what they go through collectively. It all goes to show that the scriptures are far more broad in their interpretation than we have been used to giving credit for. According to Isaiah's word links, this passage refers to the servant. On another level, of course it can apply to the Lord himself because he is even higher on the spiritual ladder than the servant. These things, what we see here, we have seen before in other parts of Isaiah. But this is kind of a synopsis of some of these ideas. They're bringing them all together. It also puts the servant in the role of Moses, who clothed and anointed Aaron, because that's what's going on here. These very people who were blind, who were captive, to whom he preaches good tidings, these very people he also clothes in the robes of the holy priesthood in verse 3. It implies that these people are progressing from one stage to another through the ministry of the Lord's servant. He preaches the gospel to them, or he preaches the law of the covenant to them. They just remain where they are? No. They go on and become illustrious, as we read a minute ago. Because they keep the law of the covenant, they prove loyal to the Lord through various tests and challenges. And because of that, the Lord blesses them with more. They progress even to where the servant himself is. They progress to that level. They go up the spiritual ladder, emulating one above. They emulate the servant as the servant emulates his Lord. The spirit endowment and the anointing are two ideas here that appear together. In the other chapter that we just read, they appear separately. In chapter 42, the servant is endowed by the spirit. In chapter 45, he's anointed. That idea has been separated there. But in the Old Testament, when King David is anointed, King David is the type of one who is anointed. It says in the book of Samuel that when David was anointed by Samuel the prophet, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. 
the two ideas go together, the physical anointing by oil and the spirit endowment that follows. Isaiah separates them. Why? To show the spiritual and political aspects of the Lord's servant in two different places. He separates the ideal, he divides the ideal to show that every time he mentions it, that political ideal or that spiritual idea is not complete. You have to be both political and spiritual. I think we have discussed that. This, the anointing by itself, is incomplete. The spirit endowment by itself is incomplete. You have to consider that there are two halves of the same coin. And chapter 61 here, verse 1, does that. It puts them both together. That's the proper thing to do. It also links those two different passages, chapter 42, verse 1, and chapter 45, verse 1. It shows that they belong together. The Cyrus figure spoken of there, the political aspect of the servant, is also the servant figure spoken of in chapter 42, verse 1, the spirit-endowed servant. The Spirit of my Lord Jehovah is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. Whenever someone is endowed or authorized like that, it's for a purpose. It's not to consume on his own pleasures and lusts, for his own ambitions it's so that he can minister to others and what does he minister? he announces good tidings to the lowly he has sent me to bind up the broken hearted being sent of God is as a messenger so he's an apostle which also means one sent or a messenger and his job is to preach or to announce good tidings the tidings are those terms of the covenant renewal of the covenant repentance the blessings that come the heralding of the coming of the Lord, the deliverance of his people from bondage, from oppression, from darkness, and so forth. Who does he mainly address? Does he go to the wealthy? No, he goes to the lowly and the brokenhearted, the ones who are oppressed, the ones who are not proud, because the proud ones are who and down, as we saw in chapter 2. So he goes to those who will receive his message, those who are brokenhearted because of all the difficulties that have been experiencing, all their afflictions and tribulations. These are the ones who will respond to his preaching. They were captives, they were bound, they were living under the yoke of Babylon, from which the servant now comes to release them. They were subject to the power of the king of Assyria. They were blind because of their idolatries and their own wickedness in the past, which they now repent, and their eyes are opened. Their eyes are opened to the truth. The wisdom of men and their learning is overshadowed, as we saw in chapter 29, by the light of truth. To herald the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. There we have the twofold aspect of the Lord's judgment, His coming. Favor or grace or mercy or deliverance for the righteous and vengeance for the wicked. It's the day of judgment when the king of Assyria does his thing. He personifies God's vengeance. It's also the day of the Lord. How can one be the same as the other? When Jesus was predicting his second coming, and he said his coming would be like a thief in the night. But he's not a thief. Nothing like a thief. But it's unexpected, and it has a twofold aspect. If the good man had been watching, he said he would not let his house be broken into. But he wasn't watching, and so the thief broke into the house and caught the wicked unawares, not the righteous. Their eyes will have been opened by the servant, and they will have been prepared for what was coming. They will be watching. There are watchmen appointed over them. To herald the year of the Lord's favor, that is, not just a day, it doesn't just pass, but it goes on. The millennial year of the earth's existence, the 7,000 years, 
is like a year to the Lord. A thousand years is like a day to the Lord. It is a prolonged period of time to comfort all who mourn, again implying the reversal of circumstances. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Going back to the Beatitudes of Christ. What do they mourn for? They mourn for their own sins. First of all, in Isaiah and elsewhere, they also mourn for the servant. Chapter 57, it's a word link. I will amply console him and those who mourn for him in chapter 57, verse 18. Verse 3, to endow those who mourn in Zion, identifying these people with Zion, and yet they don't become Zion overnight. Zion is a spiritual category in the book of Isaiah. If they were indeed blind and captives and so on, it was because they brought these things upon themselves through their own wickedness, through having suffered covenant curses. But having repented, they go up a step, up the spiritual ladder, from an Israel level to a Zion level. And when they reach that level, then they are worthy to be endowed in this way. When they reach that spiritual level, they become like Aaron and his sons. To endow those who mourn in Zion, bestowing upon them a priestly headpiece in place of ashes, a festal anointing in place of mourning, a resplendent robe in place of a downcast spirit. Moses did that for Aaron. He anointed him with oil upon his head and it dripped down into his beard and so forth. He put the robe on in the priestly robe. So these people assume the function of priestly ministers. To whom? Well, to others of the Lord's people, like Aaron did. This is a very privileged group of people whom the servant empowers to minister to others. And we saw in chapter 40 that the category of Zion or Jerusalem is commanded by the Lord to minister to the Jacob or Israel category. Just as the Lord's servant is anointed, so now he anoints God's people and empowers them as the Lord empowered him. They are not to consume this on their own ambitions or on their pride. They are to minister to others in a category lower than them now. It's a new commission that they receive here, a priestly commission. They receive the priesthood to minister to others that need them so that they too might go higher, and so that in the process of ministering to them, they themselves go higher, to a higher category. It's that kind of service to others that lifts one up to the next level, and it lifts those below to the next level. That's what it's all about. These people can appreciate that ministry because they needed ministering too. They were ministered to by the servant. They were in a state of mourning and sorrow, and now they've gone through that, and they see what it's all about. Now they can do the same for others. They're better equipped to do so. But again, notice the tremendous reversal of their circumstances. Those who mourn in Zion are endowed. The priestly had peace in place of ashes. Ashes is a chaos motif. So they were in a situation of chaos. They were low. They were like Zion being raised from the dust to sit on a throne in chapter 52, verse 1. Dust is a chaos motif. The festal anointing in place of mourning, such a happy occasion, or a splendid robe in place of a downcast spirit. That robe is a word linked to 52, verse 1. Awake, arise, clothe yourself with power, O Zion. Put on your robes of glory, O Jerusalem, holy city. Shake yourself free, rise from the dust, sit enthroned. Loose yourself from the bands around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. That kind of encapsulates this very thing we're talking about here. A resplendent robe in place of a downcast spirit. Downcast spirit because of the oppression of living in Babylon and all the injustices that are foisted upon you. And that came because of transgression and iniquity and covenant curses in the first place. Generational covenant curses. 
They shall be called the oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord for His glory. Here again, the very forthright people are compared to trees, but these trees experience the exact opposite of what the wicked trees experience. Remember in chapter 1, You will be ashamed of the oaks you cherish and blessed with the parks you were fond of. You will become like an oak whose leaves wither. This day of the Lord in chapter 2, verse 13, comes against all the lofty cedars of Lebanon that lift themselves up high against all the oaks of Bashan. And the king of Assyria is called an axe and a saw that does the hewing in chapter 10 and chapter 14. But these people experience the exact opposite. They are planted by the Lord because they responded to him and he nurtures them, he blesses them. They become the oaks or pillars of society, but they're linked to righteousness. Because of their righteousness, they become illustrious and mighty, but also because of the mission of the Lord's servant who personifies righteousness. He is righteousness personified, the one who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord, who personifies salvation. They are properly called the oaks of righteousness because those who respond to the servant are called the followers of righteousness, seekers of the Lord. In chapter 51, verse 1, and in chapter 51, verse 7, it talks about those who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Being called the oaks of righteousness is alluding to the fruits of the servant's labors among these people. Verse 4, they will rebuild the ancient ruins, raise up the old waste places. They will renew the desolate cities demolished generations ago. Again, implies that they have received an inheritance of land in the places that were destroyed before because of covenant curses. Now there's a regeneration here of the land and of the buildings. Their whole society goes to rebirth. As, of course, the wicked are destroyed from the earth, who are by far the majority, maybe 90%, according to Isaiah's imagery, and all of their places are destroyed as the people of Zion spread in the millennium and inherit the whole earth, they will be rebuilding much of the earth. Much of those places that were destroyed, they will eventually rebuild as the earth is populated again completely during that thousand years. Reconstruction is a creative thing. The king of Assyria is the one who does the destruction. He makes himself the god of this world, but he's not a god who gives life or creates. He's a god who destroys, a false god. It's a power of chaos. The servant is a power of creation, as the word light suggests. It's a creative force. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, raise up the old ways places. They will renew the desolate cities demolished generations ago. Aliens will tend and pasture your flocks. Foreigners will be your farmhands and vine dressers. And we discussed in chapter 14, there is a lower category than these. These are the people who are in the category of Moses and Aaron, who are priestly ministers to the people. And there is another category over them. So we end up with two categories in that day. Prior to the Day of Judgment, prior to the Millennium, there are three categories of people. The precious, the semi-precious, and the common. The elect, the people of God who keep His law, but who have not yet proven faithful under all conditions. And then there are the wicked. The wicked disappear, so we only have two categories left. The people of God who keep His laws and who are righteous, but they don't prove loyal in every sense. Or maybe they're in the process of doing so. And then there is that category of the elect, in this case, the people of Zion, the ones who are being made ministers, who do prove faithful to the Lord under all conditions. Maybe that's why they were in mourning. Maybe that's partly why some of them were in a state of mourning, because they were so oppressed in the process of proving faithful. They became objects of persecution. We have one category here, serving the other. Aliens will tend and pass to your flocks. Foreigners will be your farmhands and vine dressers. They don't have to do that work themselves. 
Verse 6, But you shall be called the priests of the Lord and referred to as the ministers of our God. They have a higher function on the spiritual ladder. You shall feed on the wealth of the nations and be gratified with their choicest provisions. Just like wealthy people have servants, or as they did in the old days in the South. Not that the ones who serve them are slaves, they're not. They're free, but they choose to minister to them. It's a good situation for both categories of society. Both levels of society are helped by this. Because their shame was twofold and shouted insults were their lot, therefore in their land shall their inheritance be twofold and everlasting joy be theirs. Again, alluding to the reversal of their circumstances. They were humiliated. They were insulted. They were the victims of every joke and every evil feeling that the wicked people foisted upon them. Just like Christ was just like the apostles were. Christ said to them, as they have done to me, they will do to you. We saw that the servant was abhorred. They were abhorred. He was insulted. They were insulted. That's humiliation before exaltation. That is the test of faithfulness to the Lord. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing, when you make covenant with the Lord, to go through this? If you do, you'll pass the test, and he will exalt you in the end. But if you're not willing to, then you'll have to end up in one of the lesser levels of the spiritual ladder. This is, again, very similar to the fairy stories. All these fairy stories have a similar kind of plot to them. There is Cinderella. She's really a princess. Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. In each case, the hero or heroine is insulted or humiliated or made to serve in hard bondage or something where they're totally under subjection of some wicked female, usually, which is the harlot Babylon in Isaiah, and she's the virgin daughter of Zion. And the one subjects the other to horrendous humiliation and oppression, tribulation, afflictions. But if she bears it faithfully, what happens in the end? If she submits to the higher wisdom that is given her through the messengers, the fairy godmothers in the fairy tales, the Lord's servants and servants in the book of Isaiah, they come and intervene at critical times and offer a higher wisdom Follow this and do this. They come and provide ways of getting them out of there and reversing their circumstances. The wicked ogre or giant is the king of Assyria. He tries to kill the people of God and he ends up dead himself. If people are not willing to submit to this, if people are not willing to pass the test, they end up as ugly stepsisters or other lesser characters in the story. That's life. It's a wonderful thing that children can be indoctrinated, if you like, with these fairy stories at a young age when they are very impressionable because it establishes the paradigm of life, God's paradigm of life, perfectly for them, right there in a nutshell. And if that's all they learn when they're young, great. Isaiah, he has the same thing, just with a lot more detail. But it's the same paradigm. Because their shame is twofold. Why? Because they were ridiculed and scorned and mocked and ostracized and persecuted, not because they were bad, but because they were good. Not because they did wickedly, but they did righteously. Have the wicked ever loved the righteous? What do they do with the prophets of God? They stoned them and killed them. They slandered them. They spoke evil about them. Read the ascension of Isaiah to see what they did to him. There was a false prophet, Beliar, who was continually hurling insults and spreading disinformation about Isaiah things that were not true. Nowadays, when I hear slanders or slurs on somebody, 
I don't take it seriously till I learn for myself if, in fact, anything like that that I hear is true. They were subjected to twofold shame because of their allegiance to God's covenant, they were persecuted. They were dealt with as if they were wicked, like Christ on the cross. He was persecuted and crucified, condemned, not because he was wicked, but because he was righteous. He was falsely accused. He was numbered with criminals. Because their shame was twofold and shouted insults were their lot. When I said that the Holy One of Israel was the paradigm or the exemplar of those below him on the spiritual ladder, that includes him. Didn't they do that to Christ, the Lord? Christ in Isaiah chapter 53 is the Lord himself, the Lord God of Israel. He goes through greater humiliation and shame and suffering than any of the others. The higher you go on the spiritual ladder, the more you suffer. The more you are humiliated in order to be exalted higher. There's always humiliation before exaltation. There's always suffering before salvation. There is a descent before the ascent, and Christ descended below them all, to be exalted above all. Because their shame was twofold and shouted insults were their lot, therefore in their land shall their inheritance be twofold and everlasting joy be theirs. They're not without reward. That is the test of their loyalty, whether they will prove faithful under all conditions. And if they are, then the Lord comes true for them. He doesn't abandon them. The devil abandons those who are his. He promises them things. They exalt themselves now, and then they end up humiliated without recourse. These receive a double inheritance in their land. The inheritance here is parallel with joy. Therefore in their land shall their inheritance be twofold, and everlasting joy be theirs. The joy is synonymous with the inheritance, or the inheritance is synonymous with joy. In other words, they're going to be happy. They were sad before. They had a downcast spirit. They were depressed. Sure, it would depress anybody to go through what they go through. But is it worth it? It's only momentary. This joy is everlasting. Again, the reversal of their circumstances. The same thing goes for the servant. The same thing goes for the Lord himself. When the circumstances are reversed, the glory is greater than it could have been without going through that. When Christ was resurrected, his resurrection was glorious. It facilitated and could bring forth the resurrection of all those who gave him their allegiance according to the terms of the covenant. He became the savior of all mankind, whoever would give him their allegiance. Therefore in the land shall their inheritance be twofold. That twofold inheritance is also the inheritance of the birthright son. He has a twofold inheritance. It's the full inheritance is what it means. They receive that which the father would give them. The father would give the son his own inheritance. And he takes the place of the father. And that's what these people do as they go up the spiritual ladder. They become like the one who ministered to them. Verse 8, For I, the Lord, love just dealings, but I abhor extortion in those who sacrifice. We saw that in chapter 1. There are those people going to offer sacrifice at the temple, but their lives are out of order, and so the Lord doesn't regard their sacrifice. It means nothing. But what is this saying? We talked about extortion. Chapter 59, verse 13, talks about those who willfully deny the Lord and back away from following their God, perversely planning ways of extortion, conceiving in the mind and pondering illicit transactions. Who are those people? They're people going to the temple, offering sacrifice at the temple. Isn't that what people do at the temple? What a paradox that is, of wicked people who are into extortion, making a pretense of worshiping God. 
and being counted among those people of God in the eyes of their fellow human beings. I, the Lord, love just dealings. The just dealings implies that those who are being exalted here, whose shame is being reversed, are the ones who love just dealings. And we've seen that idea before. We've seen it about those who escape destruction. In chapter 33, it says, Who among us can live through the devouring fire? Who among us can abide eternal burning? And it answers, They who conduct themselves righteously and are honest in word, who disdain extortion, and stay their hand from taking any bribes, who stop their ears at the mention of murder, who shut their eyes at the sight of wickedness, they shall dwell on high. The impregnable cliffs are their fortress, bread is provided, and their water is sure. These are the same people. These are word links. The people who pass the test. I will appoint them a sure reward, continuing with 61.8. I will make with them an eternal covenant. We've already seen part of that covenant has to do with spirit endowment at the end of chapter 59. The sure reward that the Lord appoints them here is parallel with the eternal covenant. The eternal covenant is an unconditional covenant. It has to do with land, offspring, land that is... um, regenerated to a paradisical state and offspring endowed by the Spirit of the Lord. It has to do with protection from the Lord Himself, with every covenant blessing that ever existed, all rolled into one. Particularly in chapter 54, those covenant blessings are enumerated, but they also appear sporadically throughout Isaiah, as we've already been seeing. I will appoint them a sure reward, I will make with them an eternal covenant, their offspring shall be renowned among the nations, their posterity in the midst of the peoples, All who see them will acknowledge that they are the lineage the Lord has blessed. So we have their land, and we have offspring here, and we have the priestly endowment, spirit endowment, we have exaltation of these people. They're acknowledged by others as especially blessed people, which implies that there is a category that is not as blessed as they are. Two categories. Verse 10, I rejoice exceedingly in the Lord. My soul delights in my God. For he clothes me in the garments of salvation. He arrays me in a robe of righteousness, like a bridegroom dressed in priestly attire or a bride adorned with her jewels. Now this is reiterating what we saw a moment ago where these people are endowed with priestly authority and arrayed in the robe, the priestly robe. It reiterates that but does more. It talks about them rejoicing and delighting in the Lord and we saw that everlasting joy would be theirs. But here it personalizes the whole thing because it is only individuals that experience this. They got there by being individuals. Yes, collectively they are the people of Zion, but by personalizing it implies a personal victory on the part of each one that attains that status. It's because I as an individual passed the test. I went through this ordeal myself, and whether there were comforters there or not, I went through a horrendous test to get there. The fact that there were others who failed could also mean that now you'd be in a better position to minister to them, to get them there also. In the book of Psalms, we have this kind of spontaneous joy and delight that pops up when a person has gone through these kinds of trials, these horrendous tests and trials of life, and has prevailed, has won the battle, has won the victory. The spontaneous feeling when the Lord reverses your circumstances is to praise Him, to thank Him, to glorify God and to delight and rejoice in God. He's clothed in the garments of salvation to raise me in the robe of righteousness, alluding to how he got there. Because of his righteousness, he experiences salvation. 
also alluding to the fact that the Lord and His servant, salvation and righteousness, are still all around. They're ongoing principles, as we saw before. Chapter 51, verse 6 says, My salvation shall be everlasting, my righteousness shall never fail. 51.8 says, My righteousness shall endure forever, my salvation through endless ages. They're always going to be around. They're the two arms of God, signifying God's intervention. Then it says, Like a bridegroom dressed in priestly attire, or a bride adorned with her jewels, that is the first time that male and female are mentioned together. It's not just a male experiencing this, or a female by herself. It's together. Together they experience this. And this implies that those on the highest level of the spiritual ladder, the elect category, it's not single people. It's married people that experience this. Bride and bridegroom. It may also imply newly married, because bride and bridegroom happens at the marriage feast itself. Attaining this status of becoming priestly ministers to the Lord's people coincides with their entering the marriage covenant as well. The one is not without the other. This priestly endowment of the kind that Isaiah is talking about is both of male and female together. And it implies that that male-female union is a precondition for this covenant, for being endowed in this priestly manner. You don't get to be endowed with this priesthood power or this priesthood authority or this ministry without having entered the marriage covenant. The bride adorned with her jewels, what does that imply? The jewels is a precious category, precious stones. It implies an elect category of people or offspring. Verse 11, As the earth brings forth its vegetation, and as the garden causes what is sown to spring up in it, so will my Lord Jehovah, or the Lord, cause righteousness and praise to spring up in the presence of all nations. Implying covenant blessing because of the fertility of the land, the yield of the land, of its produce. But more than that, it shows that the whole process has now borne good fruit. The whole process of what these people have gone through. It started with a seed. Then the Lord waters the seed. If the seed responds, it will be watered and it will grow. And eventually, what does it lead to? To this high and exalted status of these people, these servants of God, these ministers of our God. It also parallels the garden with the earth as the earth brings forth its vegetation, as the garden causes what it's on, we know that the whole earth is going to become like the Garden of Eden. And the whole earth will be fertile and beautiful. Righteousness is something that shines. It's what makes the people illustrious. But it's also a person, the servant. He will become illustrious. So will my Lord cause righteousness and praise to spring up in the presence of all nations. The servant's mission is to all nations of the world, to call them to repentance, to bring out of them the righteous people to Zion, so they might be blessed. At the time that the earth is being destroyed by the king of Assyria, the wicked are being destroyed, the righteous or the elect are taken out like Lot out of Sodom. And when the destruction is over, they're the ones who are left alive, and they go back and inherit the desolate places and turn the whole earth into paradise.